Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Mikey Thompson to the Philosophy Podcast. Mikey is the head coach at Christopher Newport University. Mikey's a two, 2010 graduate of UVA. Mikey's in his sixth year as the head coach at CNU. He's been to the NCAA tournament twice, made it to the Sweet 16 in 2018, losing to Salisbury by a goal. He's building a great program, and he's really one of the Brightest young coaches in the game. Really fired up to have Mikey Thompson on the show. How you doing, Mikey? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, man. Awesome. Uh, so great to be back playing lacrosse, isn't it? Oh, it feels amazing. We had our, our first full team, full contact practice on Monday, and um, we just went straight to scrimmaging. And it was, it was, there was a ton of energy on the field. It felt great. How happy were the guys? Oh, they loved it. They loved it. It was, it was perfect. It was nice and sloppy. Uh, nothing, nothing really looked great, but the energy was incredible and um, it just felt good to be back out there. I love the way you just said nice and sloppy. What do you mean by that? How can it be nice and sloppy? Well, you know, at some point you just have to realize that when you haven't put anything structured in yet and you've been working in these small pods and, you know, you really haven't even thrown a lacrosse ball further than 10 yards in some cases. So especially in the middle of the field, those full field passes were a little bit all over the place, but it created some great ground ball scrums. And that's another thing that they haven't been able to do for 11 months. Yeah. Um, so there is, there is a little bit of beauty in the, in the slop sometimes. No doubt. Well, and, in, in, in um, if it's not sloppy, then you probably are controlling it too much and making it too easy. I mean, at the end of the day, almost every game we've ever played in has been sloppy and kind of gross. You're like, oh, my God, I can't believe we won that game. 
Um, and because learning how to play through the slop actually is part of learning how to play in real games. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You have to put yourself in those situations as much as possible. So guys, guys know that it doesn't need to look perfect every time and they need to figure out solutions, even when, you know, something, something develops differently than you, you drew it up. Totally. I used to feel like it was my job to like clean it up. And now I really kind of regret ever having done that. I think you got to let the kids kind of figure it out and show them later on film and let them understand the value of the things you're trying to teach, but let, let it be sloppy. Let them learn. You know, it's funny when kids are like little, we don't like try to correct them when they, when they're falling down, when they're trying to, you know, you have little kids, I don't know if they're walking yet, but you know, you, you don't worry too much about whether they, whether they fall, you just worry about them continuing to try to figure it out. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, film everything and, you know, let them figure it out on the field. And then the quicker you can give them that feedback after practice using the film, that's kind of where they learn. And the other, the other piece is that the only way you really learn and grow is through pain. So you put a competition on a drill and you lose, you're going to want to figure out why. And so when you show them on film, now they're going to be a little bit more connected to that result and uh, they'll listen to you a little bit more. Totally. All right. Let's get into um, the, the portion I usually start with guests, which is the lacrosse journey. One of my favorite things is to listen to these amazing journeys. Um, you know, you're younger than some of the guys. I've got some guys on here and, and we were still in 1991, 45 minutes into the podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, I think your journey is a little shorter, but uh, nonetheless, really excited to hear about it. Um, so where, where did it all start for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, first of all, my dad, uh, my dad played in college and he was, uh, he was the head coach at collegiate school in Richmond, Virginia, where I went uh, to school from K through 12. Um, so he was the head coach until I was about four years old. So those are kind of my first memories of lacrosse, you know, on his shoulders, you know, watching games, idolizing all of the players on the varsity team. Um, I was the ball boy with a couple of my buddies. So we got to like leave school early some days to go travel with the team, um, and ride the bus. And those are some of my favorite memories just to think about how much I idolized those guys on the team and how much I love the sport from a young age. Um, my grandfather actually was a captain of the first, uh, post-World War II team at UVA. Wow. Um, so, um, loves the sport. He's 96 years old. Um, and he still actually comes to as many games at CNU as he can. Um, so I grew up loving UVA lacrosse as well, going to Clockner and watching games on the Hill. Um, you know, and also one of my, one of my good buddies, his dad started Geronimo lacrosse when we were in first grade, uh, Geronimo is still going on today, but it's a youth league in Richmond that's done amazing things. So before that, there really wasn't the opportunity to play, um, in the Richmond area, um, so that, that was really huge. And, you know, I played football and lacrosse in, uh, in high school. Um, we were fortunate to, to win the state championship in football, uh, my junior and senior year, wow. um, having Russell Wilson as our quarterback definitely helped that, uh, definitely made for a lot of fun on the football field. Wait, um, tell us, you got to give us a Russell Wilson story. Oh man. Um, well, he was about as dialed in in high school is now in a lot of ways I mean the same type of the same type of attitude and I've learned so much from him in terms of just mindset um going into 
every single thing that you do. I mean, he's just, he's all business, but I like to know him on a personal level too, just to know how good of a guy he is. But it made, it made for a lot of fun in playing high school football because we go out of the shotgun we didn't have the best offensive line, but it actually kind of played to our advantage because he'd just be running crazy and guys would just end up wide open. <laughs> um, but uh, Sounds like uh, nowadays too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was the running back, so I would just kind of find myself wide open. And if we did run the ball, no one expected it. So that, that opened up the holes pretty well as well. So, wow. Unreal. Um, but then in, uh, in, on the lacrosse side of things, we lost in the state championship my junior year uh, to Woodbury forest. And then my senior year, um, we ended up, we ended up winning it. So um, we had a really good group of friends and I know we'll get into this later, but my friend group just played pickup sports all the time. Um, we're the type of type of friend group that would just constantly be reprimanded from the teachers because of how physical we played at recess and stuff like that. But we played all, you know, every single sport that we, we could. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with the way we developed as, uh, as athletes. Um, but then I went off to UVA, um, you know, like I said, I was a UVA lacrosse fan my entire life. So when I got that first handwritten letter from Dom, which I'm sure a lot of guys remember, uh, it was kind of done at that point. That's where I wanted to go. Um, I was a, uh, I was a philosophy major at, um, at UVA. So I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do after college. Um, but the influence that Dom and, and coach Van and, uh, coach John Walker, who was there my senior year, the influence that those guys had on me during my time at UVA, um, made me want to become a coach. Um, so I stuck around, I had a few credits to finish in 2011. And I, um, I stuck around that year and helped coach as a student assistant. Um, we were fortunate enough to win the, win the championship that year. And, um, and I wanted to keep coaching after that. Um, there was a lot of, um, ups and downs in my time at UVA. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I have some amazing friends and teammates that came, um, that came from my time at UVA. We had some really good teams, but we also went through some really, really challenging stuff. And um, when I finished at UVA, my younger brother had just committed to play lacrosse at CNU. And um, after everything that I had been through in college, there was probably a little bit of big brother in me that wanted to be a part of his experience to kind of help him through some of those challenges. And, um, you know, the pieces kind of fell into place. There was an assistant uh, position open at CNU and I didn't know a ton about it. I knew that it was a young program and I knew that it was close to the beach. So I was pretty sold. <laughs> and um, that was in the summer of 2011. And here I am today, I guess, going into my 10th year, which is pretty, pretty insane really is. Let's go back to the UVA uh, times. Talk, talk a little bit about um, Dom and Coach Van as mentors, as coaches, and, and then talk a little bit about the, uh, the ups and the downs and the tough times that you guys faced. Yeah, well, I think just to set the stage, uh, 2006 was the year that UVA went undefeated and won the national championship. So that was my senior year of high school. Um, coming in as a freshman, we had a couple injuries and I ended up, you know, as a short stick D midi. Um, I think I was, you know, I was basically starting in that position and our first game, my first game at UVA was a loss to Drexel in overtime, oh, which yeah. was, which was a big upset. And, um, you know, we, we, 
I think went into most, if not all of the NCAA tournaments uh, throughout my four years at either number one or two, we lost to uh, Delaware in the first round my freshman year. Um, my sophomore year, we lost to Syracuse in either double or triple overtime. It was a great game. Um, we lost in the final four to Cornell my junior year. And then my senior year was uh, that, that awesome Duke game at night at M&T Bank Stadium. Um, and, um, you know, so we had some really great teams, but I think most importantly, like what I learned from Dom and coach van and how they, how they led us through some really hard times. Um, you know, specifically my junior year, um, we lost our great friend, Will Barrow, who died of suicide. Um, and then my senior year, uh, we lost our, our, our great friend, Yardley love and, and that, you know, really, really tragic event that happened my senior year. And um, just to see how Dom and Coach Van were able to get us through that time, that's two events that you never hope to experience in a lifetime. And two of those things happened, you know, so quickly back to back um, that we were really looking for answers. And um, the way that Dom and Coach Van helped us through that um, is something that I will never forget. And it's something that's really in many ways kind of made me who I am as a coach today because it's allowed me to approach the job from much more of a, um, a position of just caring for your guys. And I know that all the best coaches genuinely deep down care for their guys. But when I went into my first year of coaching at CNU, it was way less focused on winning and losing. And it had a lot to do with building a culture that would set guys up for, you know, strong relationships with each other and with themselves. And um, I think that, I think that that's really carried through to how I still like to coach today. Um, and that's, you know, you know, Dom, you know, coach Van, they're, they're the absolute best in that. So let's, let's switch gears to um, culture. Um, you just sort of told us a little bit how you view it. Um, how has that evolved for you? Um, as far as building culture in your team? And can you get a little more specific as to how you do that? And maybe how you use some of those experiences, the good and the bad, that have shaped uh, the way you do it now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it starts off our first core value is, is care more. Um, and that means to care more about, you know, everything that we're doing on and off the field. But it also means to not be afraid to show each other how much you care about them as individuals. Um, and valuing the, um, valuing the human being as much, you know, irregardless of what they're producing on the field. Um, that's, you know, that's kind of where we all start is not being afraid to show that we care about playing lacrosse and being as great as we possibly can be, but also about each other. Um, we talk about getting better and closer every day. So that, that growth mindset of, you know, doesn't matter where you're at right now. It kind of matters what you're doing right now to improve. Um, and also just getting closer to each other because you're going to want to play for the person, you know, beside you as much for, you know, yourself. You need to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, be a great teammate. You know, that's, that's, that's one of our core values in believing, um, you know, believing that we really have everything that we need to be as, as good as we possibly can be. And, you know, when I got to CNU in 2011, I think we were 
barely cracking the top 100. So there was there was definitely a building process that had to happen. Um, but deep down, you need to believe that if you do the right things over and over and over again, you're going to make progress and you're going to ultimately get to where you want to get. Um, but I think in terms of culture, the, the way I think of it is we have a lot of traditions in place that that um, help develop these things. Um, you know, we do um, an, an, an activity that we started last year called the safe seat, which we got from Clemson football, but it's one of the most powerful things that we've done as a team. And, um, you know, the, the gist of it is that you get into a room with your entire team. Um, anything that's said within that room is not to be repeated to anybody. So it's just us in there. Um, and we just have guys come up one by one, they volunteer and they talk about, you know, who their heroes are, what's maybe a highlight of their life and what's the hardest thing that they've had to go through. So it's a way to get vulnerable with each other so that you can then trust each other. Um, you know, a lot of people think that, that trust comes before vulnerability, but it's actually the other way around. So we got so close and there was some amazing stuff that was shared um, by doing that. And you can't help but want to play for each other when you have that sort of a connection. Um, but we have a lot of traditions that, that we've done throughout the years that I think reinforce that culture that we want to, uh, that we want to have year after year. That's amazing. What did you call that, that event? Uh, uh, it's called the safe seat. Um, safe. we literally bring a, a chair, the same chair in the meeting room every day. The guys know that that's what's going on. And, um, it's, it's, it's really, really powerful. Amazing. You were a philosophy major in college and you've really been interested in sports psychology and you shared a book with me called the inner game of tennis. You actually sent me a gift of the audible. I, I actually just uh, got the hard copy, Terry Mangan from uh, assistant coach at oh, nice. St. John's um, heard, uh, heard me talk about it or read something that I wrote about it or whatever. And he was like, Hey, I got a copy. You want it? I was like, yes, so badly. So now I've got my own copy that I can start underlining. But please t talk to us a little bit about your passion for sports psychology, um, the inner game of tennis and, and how you apply it all to your culture and, and to your athletes and to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, my dad has been a licensed counselor his entire life. So I think that that's probably was the starting point that got me so interested in this stuff. And um you know, it's, it's so powerful because um, a lot of college kids in particular don't realize that they are not their thoughts. You know, like everybody has a million different thoughts and feelings and emotions that rush through our heads on any given day. And when we realize the power in being able to choose which thoughts and emotions and feelings we decide to entertain or attach ourselves to, there's a great freedom in realizing that you have a lot of control on your mindset. And if a negative thought comes through your head and you just kind of think that that's who you are, you know, it's like hopping on a train, you know, five minutes later, you'll realize that you're in a negative thought, you know, a uh, series of thoughts that you never needed to be in in the first place. So having that awareness that you are not your thoughts and you can be an observer of your thoughts can then just allow you to say, all right, I don't really wanna entertain that thought right now. Let's just focus back on the present moment. Let's focus on what I'm doing right now. Then you can direct your thoughts and your feelings a lot, um, a lot better. 
Um, so the inner game of tennis is so interesting because it talks about this in a self one or self two and self one is basically it's your ego, you know, it's your thinking mind or, or what's called your monkey mind. You know, everybody has all these crazy thoughts, but the people that are able to achieve high performance over and over. And um, I always, I always like to think about like action sports guys or guys that play at super high risks. Um, if they were just kind of going with their thoughts all the time, they wouldn't be able to focus on what they're doing. Um, so this, this concept of, you know, mindfulness and being, being aware of what's going on is so powerful for athletes because you can really tune out the distractions and focus on only what you're doing and free up your mind to be a little bit more creative. Amazing. And so how do you then translate this to your athletes? Well, it's something that, uh, it's something that we talk about a lot. Uh, we have a, a portion of our practice every day that's called halftime where we just have a certain concept every day of the week that we like to bring in, bring in everybody together and talk about. So we'll talk about, um, we'll talk about stuff like that. This, this fall during COVID times, we actually did an entire course on mindset. And so we got on zoom calls and we went through stuff like confidence and optimism and, uh, calm, like how to calm yourself down a little bit. If your nervous system's a little bit too ramped up before a game and stuff like that. And, um, you know, all these things we actually talked about, like the science and the mechanics behind all these high performance traits. And, um, and it was pretty awesome because it was very new and COVID actually gave us some time to, to focus on this stuff. So, um, one of the easiest ways to think about it is, um, is neutral thinking and, um, and, and Russell Wilson, you'll, you'll hear him talk about this all the time, but it's basically whatever happens throughout the course of a game, um, it doesn't really matter what just happened or what's about to happen. You have to bring yourself back to the truth. Like you can't just be positive all the time because, you know, if something bad just happened, you don't want to try and fake yourself out and say that that was positive, but ultimately all that matters is what you do next anyway. So it's like you bring yourself back to neutral and realize that the past is not predictive of the future. You just need to be right where you are in that moment and use all of your internal or internal resources to do the next right thing. So it's kind of this constant process of bringing yourself back to the present moment. And that's where, you know, I was telling you a little bit how I'm, um, I'm teaching mindfulness and I'm actually in the middle of teaching my coaching staff right now. Like we do one class a week, which has been really cool, but it's that constant um, return to the present moment so that you're able to access all of your skills in that moment. It's so important not to judge, just see things for what they are. Right. So if it was a mistake, it was a mistake. You don't have to get mad at yourself or pissed off. It's not, you just know, you know, you, but you don't, you don't have to pretend it didn't happen either. Right. It's, it's a matter of just seeing for what it is, seeing something for what it is, the truth. And if you can learn from it, learn from it and then, and then move on to the now. Exactly. And um, you know, acceptance is a big, is a big term that's talked about in mindfulness and the metaphor that's used is, you know, your tires are stuck in the mud and, you know, how quickly are you going to react to that situation? Practicing meditation and mindfulness gives you a little bit more space between the stimulus and that your and ultimately your response. So if you're stuck in the mud and you just curse the heavens and, you know, 
pump the gas, you're just going to go deeper and deeper. But if you're able to just kind of have an acceptance of, yes, I am stuck in the mud. Now, what, what can I do? What's the next right thing to do? Well, I should probably call a friend and there's a million different things you can do. Um, but all this stuff kind of, it's like a common thread that goes between all of these mindset skills, which I think is really, really cool. It is. I've been, um, when you sent me the audible and I started listening to it, I was, uh, to the, to the inner game of tennis. I was so blown away by, by everything I was hearing. Cause it was things that I've been, th- or the uh, things that I've been thinking about. And, you know, you and I've talked a lot about free play and I always, I always noticed that this, the free, the kids that played a lot of free play somehow gained confidence. If they were, they gained assertiveness. Um, they, they just made the play that was in front of them. And what I just really realized was when they're doing that, they're just practicing, allowing self to, to play as opposed to in a controlled setting where they're trying to do what a coach is asking them to do or trying not to do what the coach is asking them not to do. Then all of a sudden self one is, is in the way. Um, can you talk about that and then how you try to apply that to your team in developing the combination of, Hey, we need to play as a team and do some things together. And we're trying to accomplish certain things, but also allow people to sort of learn and allow their self too to get in and also gain that confidence of just making the play that's right in front of them. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, I think that confidence of course comes from uh, the amount of difficult situations that, that you've put yourself through over time you know, just over and over putting yourself in difficult situations is going to allow yourself to say, you know, during the game, I can do difficult things. You know, I'm ready for this. I've been doing this over and over and over again. And the other side of that is what you're saying to yourself when you do make a mistake. Um, You know, if, if you're quick to, you know, get on yourself, right. When you make a mistake, you're likely to, um, kind of wallow in that for the next couple of minutes. But if you get really good at being like, you know, I can do get difficult things. I've done this before. I played a million games in free play. Um, that allows you to be confident and that allows you to just play. And I think that, you know, in, in, in talking about drills and putting yourself in situations where you're just trying to do what the coach is telling you to do, maybe that's a little bit more like self one getting in the way because you're thinking about it too much. You're thinking about what the coach wants you to do as opposed to just kind of letting quieting your mind and, and letting it happen. Um, and of course you have to have a, a baseline of skills to be able to just let it happen. There's, there's no denying that. Um, but I think it is about quieting your mind and being aware of the types of things that you're saying to yourself to free yourself up to make those plays. And I think free play is such a good setting to do that because, you know, the, the the consequences aren't quite as high when you're doing this stuff over and over and over again, but yet you still want to win. So you're trying to figure out throughout the course of the game, what are the things that I can do to help my team? And um, what are the things that are most effective? And like I said earlier, you only change because of pain. So if you start doing things that don't work, you're less likely to do it the next time because you do want to win and you want to compete. Totally. It's kind of like 
It's where communication is born, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Because no one's just telling you to communicate. You're, you're literally having to figure it out on your own. And um, the best communicators, I think, are, are really born in these, these free play environments. I think one of the um, paradoxes is that free play isn't always the most physical uh, it can be no equipment in tennis balls. It can be boys and girls. It can be eighth graders playing with freshmen in college. Um, it doesn't have to be the highest level of competition. And I want you to talk about that in terms of the way you kind of said difficult situations and sort of help, help us understand that, that paradox between free play that can be that can be kind of fun and it can be something that it is hard to win the game and it is hard to execute the skills, but it's not necessarily some incredibly physical taxing thing, but it does teach you how to be the hardest thing is just to be in the moment and just to play without thinking and read the game and be, be almost be one with the game. Yeah. Well, I think in terms of the reps, you, you think about how long you can play a free play game. I mean, we could go out there and play for an hour and a half and be fine, you know, playing a three on two or something like that. The minute you introduce pads, you're just not going to be able to play for that long because um, you're going to beat each other up and you're going to be gassed and your reps are going to be, you know, compromised. So that's, that's one side of it is the amount of time you're, uh, uh, you know, able to play is going to give you, way more reps, you know, way more decisions that you can make, um, way more finishes, way more reading the defense, manipulating the defense, trying new things and being more creative and see what actually works for your skill set and what doesn't. Um, so, you know, if free play was the only answer, then all college lacrosse coaches would just be, you know, out there with small goals and a tennis ball for two hours a day. I definitely don't think that that's it. Right. Um, but there's, there's a really, there's definitely a, a space for it. And, you know, ultimately, like when we design a practice plan, we want it to be the best part of their day. I mean, I, I just don't want to put these guys through something that's not enjoyable for them or for us as coaches. Um, so we want to make lacrosse um, just, I mean, it's the medicine game. Like we want to make it fun for them. And there's nothing more fun than playing pickup. I mean, it's just, it's the best. So you could tell your players in the off season to go um, hit the wall and lift weights and shoot on the net. And they do have to do that stuff. There's no substitute for that. Um, but by creating a culture where guys are playing pickup all the time, it doesn't feel like work. You know, I always kind of cringe when people just say the grind because yeah. there are things that are a grind, but like, our guys love lacrosse and they love to play. And that's ultimately the type of kid that I want. Um, I don't want them to do it because someone's telling them to do it. I want them to go want to get a group together and play pickup on the field. And so that's an element of it too, that I think helps you long-term is just the amount of time you're on the field and playing. No doubt. And where are you going to be able to practice pairs offense? You know, you can't practice that on the wall, but you can practice it in a four on four plus a goalie game. Right. But but the other piece is, you know, in practice, um, you know, that's that to me, the free play is the fun part. And it's also where I think you can really develop. All right. So to me, it's like it's where players develop. Um, practice is different because you're trying to develop a team. But I but I think the commonality is the importance of 
competition and allowing players to figure things out in, ter in terms of how to win that competition. So many times in practice, we as, we as coaches, we know that kids love competition and that we get more out of a competitive rep, except for sometimes we feel like we don't get the same quality of the rep. We may not rep the skill or the concept that we exactly want without it becoming a drill with some control. But I, I kind of feel like that can be fool's gold. And actually you have to kind of figure out how to create the context for them to actually learn on their own. For example, like, I don't know, controlling the ball. You can tell people to control the ball all day long, <laughs> but until they have to control the ball to win a game and they can practice doing that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about now as we transition into actual practices, how you use these decision-making models to try to build your, to build your team and their, your IQ and their ability to win games? Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, competition within drills, um, or I would, you know, we would probably call them games at that point if there's a winner or a loser. So creating games within our practice plan has always been huge because um, with a winner and a loser, your offense versus defense, you know, your, your focus is heightened. You know, we're not just going to play six on six and roll out six balls. And if you throw it away, we just throw you another one. Right. Let, let's play six on six where you get a point for a goal and the defense gets a point for clearing it. And you get two points if you get behind the defense and start transition. Like games like that are going to get guys a little bit more focused. Um, and it's going to put them in more of an environment where um, they're used to dealing with a little bit of pressure. And you might not get the, the quantity of reps, but ultimately you're getting quality of reps that's going to replicate the game more. And I think once you have a certain skill set and they know the fundamentals and maybe you do it part whole or in a vacuum there for a little bit, you know, once you get to that point, I love doing competitive drills where, you know, maybe the loser does push-ups or sprints or something like that. And again, guys just love it. Guys love when they're competing for something that energy gets up and they, um, they support each other. Um, so I think that again, with everything, there's a balance, right? It's, there's no one size fits all. You can't just do all free play or all competition. Right. Um, but, uh, but you do have to think about with your team, what's the right, what's the right balance, the right balance. Yeah. And really be thoughtful about that. Hey, so, Let's transition into um, what you guys are doing on offense these days. What's your uh, philosophy and what are you guys trying to run? Um, yeah, I mean, I think every year we, we look at our personnel um, because as we've talked about many times, Jamie, I mean, all sets can kind of look the same at one point or another throughout the, throughout the course of um, a possession. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've definitely looked at um, – a lot of the stats that are coming out of, you know, both the MLL and the PLL and, you know, what are, what's producing the highest quality shots, you know, stick to the middle, um, getting to the middle, getting guys on their natural side, um, two man game, you know, two man game has been a much bigger emphasis for, uh, for our offense um, in the last couple of years, um, you know, creating more space for those off ball guys and seeing if you can, draw three guys to the ball to create a four on three, you know, off ball, um, you know, stuff like stuff like that. I mean, um, our base set has either been, you know, a one four and making sure that that we're dodging those low wings. We're doing some big little stuff. 
Um, we do a little weave action up top. Um, but, but we like to practice everything in either a four on four or five on five setting um, before we put in six on six, because as we've talked about, um, it's more about like your identity and, um, and your philosophies and, um, than it is about the set, you know what I mean? Spacing and, uh, ball movement and switching the fields and getting to the middle, putting guys in the right spot, shot selection, like all those things ultimately is what's going to be the most important. You might run a little action on the backside to get a switch um, or to get the defense moving or, or, or something like that. But um, giving your guys the ability to put themselves in positions where they're going to be successful and then having them um, read and react. You know, what we talk about on defense all the time is the five guys need to be looking at the on-ball defender and figuring out how much they're going to need to help in. And I think the same concept can be applied to the offensive guys. You know, they don't want to just be running through motions because that's what they're being told to do. They want to really think about who's dodging, what's that matchup look like, where can I get to be dangerous at all times. Um, so I think that's that's kind of the general general idea of what we're looking to do on offense. When I think about de teaching defense versus teaching offense, on defense, things are usually principle-based. Things like make it hard to get to the middle of the field, um, you know, try to give up shots from low angles and not from the middle uh, to try to communicate, to be able to help. Cause you never really know what's going to get thrown at you. So you can't just have like exactly scripted defense. You have to read and react. And yet on offense, so often it becomes scripted motions. And we were talking about this before the podcast, any coach would say, the principles are the most important part of our offense, uh, ball movement, uh, drawing, drawing a double and moving the ball, um, you know, spacing to name a few, there's a, there's a, there's probably 15 important ones, but then sometimes we end up putting more stock in our motion or our set. And all of a sudden we're focusing on that rather than focusing entirely on the principles. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that a little bit, if you would. Yeah, I think, you know, there, like I said, there, there is a time and a place to, to probably put your guys into a set to make sure that guys are on the same page, but also you as a coach are going to know what's going to put pressure on certain defenses, maybe based on the way they slide or what, what their, what their philosophy is. But um but other than that, you know, when you're putting guys into, into sets and making them run specific motions, there's a little piece of them that's thinking about where they're supposed to be as opposed to playing and reading the Dodger and making sure that there are outlets. You know, that's, that's really where it all starts is making sure that there are outlets. And then there's other, you know, three guys need to put himself into dangerous positions and, you know, find a, find a skip lane and stuff like that. So if you just think that you're supposed to run a mumbo on the backside, because that's what you're supposed to do, but you're wide open, why would you go exchange? And that's where I think we, it, it's kind of a tough thing to do as, as a coach, because you're like, why would you just, you were wide open on that skip lane. And then he says, but coach, I was supposed to, I was supposed to cut the middle there. So that's kind of the, 
that's kind of the uh, rock and a hard place you're in as a player more so than a coach. We as a coach have the ability to tell our guys they can do whatever they want as long as it's within our principles. But the minute we start telling them what they do and what they don't have to do, now you're kind of putting them in a hard place. It is all a balance too, because there are so many great looks out there. So many, you know, great sets and motions. And, you know, you and I have, uh, well, we're working together now on the coaches training program, everybody, in case you didn't know, with Bobby Benson's departure to the University of Maryland. Um, I got, I was able to get Mikey Thompson to join and help conduct office hours and help create content and stuff like that. And Mikey has been since, since the beginning of this, he's been a, a subscriber and has put a lot of time into it. And both of us share the passion of studying all of this stuff. Um, and so there's so many amazing looks out there. The question is, how do you get to those looks? Is it easier to get to them from the structured motions or from the principles and once you get to the point that you can do it all, certainly you can probably structure anything you want if people really know what they're doing. And I, I think that's kind of where I've gotten to in general is rather than trying to structure the evolution of everyone's development, uh, try, to let, try to use film and let them figure out how to get there. Because I, I still want all of the looks in any one of these offenses and I want all the skills that I've ever wanted. It's more a difference of how do you get there? Right. Right. And I think that back to our earlier conversation, you know, maybe it, maybe it looks a little bit sloppy at first and maybe you have to swallow your whistle and maybe you have to compete and let them figure it out to the point where you get to where you feel like, you know, they have those principles pretty dialed in and um, their spacing is pretty dialed in They're They're seeing the field when they're dodging They're you know, they're um, they're clearing space for the dodges, like all that kind of stuff. And then you get a little later in the season, you're like, all right, I've got this great righty step down shooter. Let's yeah. dodge the left wing. Let's, let's, you know, exchange the X guy and the crease guy and let's pop him off and try and get him that shot. Um, so it doesn't totally change what you're doing, but it also is taking advantage of what you have. Right. When you think about NBA coaches, the way they're able to draw something up for a shooter it's because of the fluency of the players. And so they got there, they're pros, you know, they're the smart, they gotta be the most best athletes and generally the smartest players. And right. I think that's what we want out of our own players. I just think that in getting there, sometimes you have to get there through letting them play. But when, when we talk about letting them play, it doesn't mean that you're never teaching. It just means that I think using film, using film as a really simple, this is what happened. You don't have to judge it. It is what it is. And you, you can basically just, why did this happen? Why did, the, why did this play score? Why did this play not work? Why did this defender pick off that pass? Why, you know, and, and, and then from there, you can begin to understand and it creates awareness. And it kind of goes back to the inner game of tennis of the visual, the, abil the ability to visualize things and, 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 and actually internalize them that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I wouldn't want to come across as saying that we just roll a ball out and tell them to play, you know, like we've been filming every drill of every practice since 2011 at CNU and the amount of hours that our staff has put into 
you know, breaking down film and making notes and watching it with our guys. You know, we have a pre-practice meeting pretty much before every practice where we watch practice film. And that is where the learning occurs, which allows you to have that, this, this fun, um, upbeat practice where we're not blowing the whistle all the time and trying to teach too much on the field. So I, I can't speak um, highly enough of how important filming practice has been for us. So important. It's where everybody learns the most. I mean, just like in a game where truly a coach or player or a parent really has no idea what happened until you watch the film. It's the same thing in practice. Right. Well, and you're getting a different view of the film. And so what I see as a coach is completely different than what the athlete sees with the ball, you know? So for them to be able to understand the spacing and why it's so important from that from that higher, from that higher angle. Um, you know, it's, it's just really important. And we also have our guys, I like to have our guys lead the film session every now and then, and just have them tell us what they see and have that conversation so that they're able to take ownership for what's happening out there as opposed to me just talking them through every single clip every time. Yeah. Well, uh, talk to us a little bit about your defensive philosophy. Um, Again, I think it changes, uh, it changes a little bit from year to year based on personnel. Um, we've had years where we've had outstanding goalies and we, in our earlier days, probably didn't match up athletically with some of the top teams in the country. And so we've run a, a decent amount of zone. Um, this is a year where I don't think we'll run very much zone because we've got some really, really good experienced athletic defensemen and, um, and, um, you know, our two kind of buzzwords for our defense this year are urgency and unity. So, you know, if your guy has the ball and he's even close to the outside of the box, we want to go play him. You know, we want to go get on their hands. We want to make them uncomfortable. We don't want them to be able to just sit back and run their offense and run their looks. Um, we want to go, we want to go play guys. So that's kind of the, the urgency piece of it. Um, the unity piece is, is really in regards to the off-ball guys. The five guys off the ball need to all be on the same page. They need to be looking at what's going on with that, with that Dodger, what's going on with, with cutters and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it's not that we're going to slide every time or we're never going to slide, but we want to be all on the same page and know that, okay, if I do have to go here, I'm going to have someone behind me that can, that can fill in and be a two-slide. So... Um, I think it, it's, it stems from probably being more aggressive, um, looking for the opportunities in our drills and in our practices to, to find doubles and just make teams as uncomfortable as we can all over the field. And that's in the ride game. That's on ground balls. That's in transition. That's running early offense. We just want to attack, attack, attack as much as we can. And, I'll, you know, watching Carolina and UVA play this last weekend, it really seems like that's where the game's going. Like the teams that are committed to attacking and exploiting all opportunities. If you have the talent and the skill set to do it, which of course those two teams do, but it seems like the, the uh, return on investment for playing that type of lacrosse is, is pretty high with these new rules. So you mean attacking defensively, attacking by pushing the ball in transition, attacking in early offense. Is that what you're referencing there? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, maybe not. Well, I would say on defense as well. I mean, when are you ever going to get a better opportunity than a four on four? 
you know, um, why get all six guys in if you have the space to just attack a short stick or even attack a pole in a four on four set situation when the defense isn't really into their six on six schemes yet. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think that that's kind of where the game's going and it's, it's really exciting. I mean, I love watching teams ride too. Um, with the, with the shorter, with the shorter time to get it cleared and stuff. So, um, I don't know. That's just always how I've thought about the game. And I love, I love watching that. I love coaching it. Kids love playing it and you can recruit kids that can play that way too. Yeah, totally. And it is fun. And the shot clock makes it possible because you just couldn't play that way when the other team was hanging on to the ball for four and a half minutes, you know, Absolutely like not. you kind of had to play the same game they did. It's right. so interesting because, you know, when you think of a shot clock, it's a, it's a constraint on, on the offense, right? It limits their time. And you would think of it almost as like a defensive rule, but actually what it did was it just made the offense, you know, try to score. And uh, people realize that their efficiencies could be pretty darn high, even in less time. And, and so it's, it's been so much fun to watch. Um, how would you say you coach differently now with a shot clock versus when pre-shot clock days? Um, it hasn't changed a ton, um, honestly, because we've always loved to um, love to push the transition in the early offense side of things. Um, I think that it has ramped up our pressure on defense a little bit because by chasing guys around a little bit, it's taking them longer to be able to get into their sets. And that's, that's buying time. That's, that's an advantage for you defensively. And I think you just said it, Jamie, and that's like on offense before the shot clock, there was literally a time and a place for not even thinking about scoring a goal. And now any time that you waste on offense, not, you know, probing and testing your matchups a little bit, um, you know, that, that clock's just winding down. So I think there's just, there's an urgency to everything and I think maybe it's changed the amount of guys that we want to play too. Obviously, if you want to play this up pace style of lacrosse and you want to chase guys around a little bit defensively and you want your attackman to ride on every possession, you've got to have more guys because they're going to get tired. And so having a commitment to maybe play four or five defensemen or four or five attackmen and maybe three midfield lines and four shorties, you know, really, really valuing the depth of your team and hopefully being able to get more guys into the game. I think that's a win too, especially in today's world where there's probably bigger rosters than normal across the country. I want my guys to be able to play. And I think that playing this way probably opens the door for that. Yeah, no doubt. All right. Last topic. Let's talk a little bit about recruiting and CNU. Talk about your school. Um, people love it there. I had one of my players at Mountain Vista come down. Um, and uh, play for you. Um, loved it. And I would love to hear uh, more about it. And I think people would too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the first thing that brought me to seeing you, my, my older sister went there um, and, uh, and absolutely loved it. I remember dropping her off for her first day um, to move in and gosh, it's beautiful. It's just such a pretty campus. It's in a really, a really good area. Um, like I said, my younger brother played at seeing you as well. And um it's, it's really close to the beach and there's not a lot of places in division one or division three lacrosse that, you know, I could live at the beach and, and coach there. So that's one of the things that brought me to it. And it's been cool to see how much my guys have started to utilize the beach. Um, I'll see them, you know, there on the weekend surfing and stuff like that. And I, 
I just love to see that because it's such a great, it's such a great thing to be able to do on the weekends. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a great school. We have a really great business program at CNU. Um, really good people. I mean, there's, there's little traditions at CNU that probably sound cheesy for an outsider, but they make a huge difference just in the day-to-day life of campus, holding doors for each other, um, talking to people when you walk by them, you know, like how awful is it when you walk through campus and literally everyone doesn't pick their head up um, from their cell phone, like people talk to each other. And so there's a really cool atmosphere at CNU and um, it's been a great, it's been a great spot for me um, for sure. Um, but in terms of the recruiting piece, um, one of the first things I did once I got the head coaching job was I, I drove up to Charlottesville and had lunch with Dom and, you know, he gave me his advice on recruiting. And the first thing he says was, I always felt that I was a better coach when I had better players. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so obvious, but he was basically saying, you have to value how important recruiting is. Yep. And if you're going to take time away from your family to go recruit, you know, be one of the hardest working guys on the sidelines, you know, be there early, stay there late, you know, do your, do your due diligence. And, um, and he also said to, to make it personal, but don't take it personally. And I think that was such great advice because, you know, at the end of the day, kids want to come play for a coach and for a culture that they feel comfortable in. And, there's a lot of great schools that have pretty campuses and great business programs and um, you know, they're successful on the field, but you want to, you want to make it very personal. You want to have a relationship with your, with your coach. And um, but the other side of that is don't take it personally. Like when we have a really good recruit that we really want, he chooses another school, especially if it's a coach that I love and really respect. I'm the first one to congratulate them and say, that's awesome because there's a reason why he chose that school and not seeing you. And we'd rather, we'd rather find that out on the front end as opposed to just trying to convince them to come to seeing you later to realize it's not the best fit for that person. Um, so I think that's such a huge piece for it um, is, is to really figure out, you know, what is, what's the best fit for that kid and to be, to be happy for them one way or the other. What are you looking for? from a character perspective, an athletic perspective, and a skill perspective, just generally speaking, and how do you view that? How do you see it? Yeah. Um, I mean, the character piece is definitely the first piece that we, that we look at assuming that they are good enough, you know, like there's a lot of great kids, like really good kids that aren't quite good enough to play at CMU or, or, or a lot of different places. But, but if you are good enough, if you are athletic enough and skilled enough, and we can envision where you would fit into the way we play. I think kids love to know how they fit in. Yeah. Um, they love to know where you see them um, within the offense or, or, or on the team. And obviously every kid that you bring in, you as a coach think at least has a good opportunity to push to play if they do all the right things and they work hard and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, with a large, with a larger roster, there's still always going to be, a little under 50% of guys that don't play. You want the types of kids that are great teammates and are going to work just as hard, even if they don't end up starting and they're not working hard just to start. It's working hard because they truly believe in the overall experience and the overall value of being a part of your program. 
You know, like if you think about some of your best buddies, the guys that you respect the most, a lot of them has nothing to do with if they played or not. They're just good guys and they put in every bit as much as you did if you played. So those are the types of kids we want. Obviously guys that are going to take your program to the next level. And, you know, we always want to be better the next year than we were the year before. Right. Um, but you also want the guys that don't play to be every bit as invested. They need to know that their value is every bit as much as the starters. And those relationships have the opportunity to be every bit as strong as the starters. And there's, there's some intangibles there that you have to look for. I would love to play for you, coach. And I really appreciate you coming on this show. And I'm fired up to be working with you with the JM3 Coaches Training Program. I think everybody else is too. Thank you so much for taking the time, sharing your thoughts, your history, your journey, your wisdom, and uh, your attitude towards learning. So it's, uh, it's inspirational. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And it's already been very humbling to, um, to talk to some of the coaches that I've gotten the chance to talk to through some of the webinars and, um, you know, hearing some of the guys on the podcast and stuff like that. It's just been, um, I just love learning from those guys. So I appreciate it. And um, we'll talk soon. Awesome, man. Talk soon. Thanks, Jamie.